Good morning, everybody, and welcome to From the Deep End this morning. It's Wednesday morning, June 22nd, I believe it is. Good to be with you here. Of course, my name is uh, Jonathan Jenkins. You should probably, and I should probably unmute my microphone. That would work. Uh, would work wonderful. Let's try that again with the microphone unmuted. Hey, everybody. That works so much better. Uh, the audio stream, they got it. They got the opening. You didn't on the video stream. So welcome everybody to From the Deep End. It's so good to be here with you on this June 22nd. Let's try it again uh, on From the Deep End. Of course, uh, my name is Jonathan Jenkins and we are glad to be here. I'm glad to be here with you today as we uh, begin a study of God's word this morning um, uh, and looking forward to it here for the next couple of hours um, on From the Deep End. Of course, our regular viewers and listeners know by now that uh, in the first hour of the program, uh, we take uh, any kind of Bible-related questions you have, um, and we use that term loosely. Uh, you can ask just about any kind of thing you want to, and I'll try my best to give you a, a biblically-related answer to it. Um, I always, as you know, reserve the right to tell you that's as much as I know or I don't know or something along those lines. Uh, we'll try to do my best to give you at least a uh, a um, Bible-related um uh, answer that uh, at least will get you started, even if I don't know the full answer to your question. I'll at least try to help you out a little bit along the way. But we do appreciate, I do appreciate having your questions in here uh, and just the uh, different ways, different directions this program goes during that first hour is always always uh, encouraging to me uh, and challenging most, most mornings. But uh, glad to do it. Uh, in the second hour of the program, of course, we are in the middle of our study of First Peter. Um, we begin... Um, we're on our 10th lesson, which of course means we're in about verse number 10. <laughs> no, no, I think we're actually in about like verse 15 or 16. So, uh, but uh, we are in the middle of chapter one on on um, on that, and we will uh, continue that in the second hour of the program uh, today. Um, the rest of the day on From the Deep End, I believe all we have to, to going is LaBeth Brewer uh, with her show at uh, two o'clock entitled The Mindful Soul. Uh, for those who may not be aware, just remember that um, Labeth has added a, a three o'clock session uh, intended for our subscribers, um, and it is just another it's a semi-private, if you will, hour with a therapist. And so if you have anything you'd like to discuss, obviously it's not a private one-on-one -on -one session, but it is just our, our digital Bible study family, so it's a little bit smaller group uh, that's able to get there and join together, so just, just a handful of people in the room and uh, by now, most of us know each other, so it's a little a uh, little more intimate, and you get a chance to have a not a counseling session, but at least a a a, 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 a Q and A type thing with a therapist. And I know that is a uh, I think that, I know that's going to be helpful to a lot of people that if they choose to use it. Um, and thank Labeth for doing that. So that comes on at three. Um, uh, the login information for that is on our Facebook feed. Uh, it's on our locals page. Uh, if you're a member to the website, you should have gotten a mail out, uh, an email uh, about that. It's also on our Patreon page. It's it's on all the different social media platforms that we're on. Uh, you can find that. Just look for the Zoom meeting for uh, a mindful soul, and you should be able to get the uh, login codes from there. Um, or if you are one of our members, you can always just contact Labeth, and she could probably send you those codes as well. Um, 
Um, let me see what we have on the question side. Um, let's go see what I have here. I got one that I see there from Jonathan. That's good. Um, one from Nelson that I see, and one from Johnny that I see so far. All right, that's what we have. Got those three marked. Let's see. Um, let me give you. Let me take a minute before I answer yours, Jonathan. That, that might take a minute. Uh, let's go ahead and start with Johnny's. Um, I got one from Melissa as well. Um, uh, let me start with Johnny's here. Uh, Johnny asked just a real simple question here. Can you restate where Eric and I are going? I've been asking, I've asked, but I've missed the sessions from what you told audience. I told the audience. Um, Eric is moving to uh, the West Side Congregation in Round Rock, Texas, just a suburb of Austin. Uh, real, real nice part of the, of the state, just right on the border of what they call the Hill Country. Um, real nice, real nice portion, real some real nice areas up in that area, and I know he'll he'll do good work up there. West Side's a a uh, larger congregation, not um, uh, vibrant, does a lot of good things. Um, so I know Eric is going to be a great fit for them. Um, and and uh, looking forward to hearing how that work goes for him. I think he starts the 1st of August. Uh, and as for me, I'm not actually moving anywhere. Um, I'm going to be, uh, I've been a member at the Rockledge congregation for, I guess, going on three years now, something of that nature. Um, and I'll just be transitioning from being a member there to uh, uh, sliding into the uh, into the pulpit role. So um, that's that should start sometime in July. Uh, it hasn't officially been um, well, it's been announced that they're that, that, that they that they want to hire me. Well, um, um, but um, we haven't actually sat down and talked about all the details of the job and all that stuff. We're gonna do that first Saturday, I think in July. Uh, I've got a couple of trips I need to take um, in July. Uh, I've got a family funeral that I got to go to the first week of July and a couple of other things. So um, that may impact when I'm able to start, but we'll find that out. So uh, I'll be, I'll, well, actually, I'm not going to be, probably not going to be living in this place in this, in the, that's going to stink because waking up to the, to the beach every morning is really nice. It, it, it does, it doesn't stink. And that sound of the waves rolling in, it doesn't get old. I can tell you, you know, you would think that constant noise, repetitive noise like that would, you know, start to grate on you. It doesn't. No, it doesn't. Not one time have I, have I have ever thought, man, I just wish the waves would be quiet this morning. Not not a single time have I ever thought that. Um, but um, so we're probably going to be <clears throat> going to try and rent this place out. Um, we bought it at a time where, I mean, if we, if we just call it Providence, call it whatever you want to. If we hadn't bought it when we bought it, we would never have been able to afford it. It was right at the, the lowest point of, of the valuation of this property. And with the housing prices over the last four years, first of all, I really don't want to sell it. That that would hurt. <laughs> and if I did sell it, there's, 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 there's no way we could afford it again. There's no way we'd ever be able to buy the thing again. So we're going to try and rent it out and, and see if we can't do something with it. So if you want to want to rent a beachfront condo, I know one that's available for you. Um, and for a uh, digital Bible study, I got I got a good rate for anybody that comes from digital Bible study. Uh, if you want to see pictures of it, if you're friends with Julie on Facebook, you can go to her her Facebook timeline and you can see pictures of the place that's for rent. Okay, sales pitch done. Sales pitch done. Um, but that that's what's going on with this, Johnny. But th thanks for the question. Um, I'm going to go ahead and grab a, 
I guess Melissa's here as well, because that's another kind of personal thing that I can deal with pretty quickly here. Uh, did I hear you say there are six generations of preachers in your family? It's something like that, Melissa. Um, uh, and it may actually be now be seven from um, my generation down. We have, we've had a, a few more uh, guys um, become preachers in that, in that period of time as well. It, it, ask, ask my dad that question tomorrow. Um, he could, he could, um, um, he, he, he's a better family historian than I am. So he, he would know, um, exactly, exactly the number. Uh, one of us, I don't remember who it was. I think it was either Jeff or Dale, um, put together a, um, a, um, a listing of every person, not just the generations, but every man that we could find or could remember who spent at least some portion of his life in full-time ministry. Um, and that was, uh, so whoever did that, I won't, say, I won't say it was Jeff. I don't remember, it may not, I don't remember, but it was like 35 or 40 guys over those six generations. So it's not just, you know, it's not just like one straight line. There's a lot of sub branches that go on, on to that. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it has been a, a family tradition, I guess you could say. Um, Let's see what else we have here. Let me go back up some of these other ones. Um, Nelson asks, uh, Luke 21, 27 is a perplexing verse for me. Can you provide some clarity? Um, uh, no, Trish. Did I say Jeff Johnson? No, Jeff, Jeff Jenkins. Jeff A. Jenkins. Um, to get to your question down there, um, Trish. Uh, Jeff and Dale are brothers. Uh, they are Jerry's sons, or two of Jerry's sons. Uh, he had a has a third son, but his name's Kerry. He's never preached. Um, and then, of course, Dan is my dad, and Dan and Jerry were were brothers. So, um, but let's go turn our turn our Bible over here to um, Luke twenty one twenty seven, and give me just a second. Apparently, I closed my Bible program down overnight. Didn't realize I did that. Either that, or my system rebooted, and I didn't realize that it did. Um, give me just a second. Those on the audio feed just got a nice little chime from the Bible program loading. And where is it? <laughs> it says it's loaded. There it is. Okay. It was hiding under another window. It opened up under another window. It's like, a, just opened it and I can't find it. All right. All right. Let's turn our attention over to Luke chapter 21. Uh, Nelson, I don't know verse 27 specifically. I do think I know verse 28, which is weird because then I should know. Verse number 27. Um, here we go. All right. Um, oh, I didn't turn the chat over. Really. I was, y'all need to remind me that I need to do that on, in the first hour. I like to like to have that up there in the first hour so y'all can see it. Um, all right. Luke 21, 27 is the verse you, question, you were question, asking about. Uh, and then they will see the Son of Man coming with power uh, and great glory. All right. Uh, we, we have talked about this some, Nelson. Um, actually, when did we talk about it last? Um, I think we talked about it in the study of First Peter, maybe about three or four days ago. Uh, the Right there at the, probably was that verse six or seven or so of First Peter, where Peter talks about the grace that will be given to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, I take that to be a, a statement of, the coming judgment on the Jewish nation. So in and around uh, AD 70. Um, uh, I'm not a strict AD 70ist in the sense that I think there was some kind of, you know, 
light switch on, light switch off kind of event when the Romans entered Jerusalem. I, I do think the the exclamation point of that age is right at AD 70, but it, it probably things began to transition somewhat before, maybe somewhat after that point as well. Um, so usually when I say it, I will say in and around AD 70, just because I, 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 I don't want people to think there's something magical about the date uh, I don't think there is. I think it's the, it's the it's the culmination of the age. It's the completion of the mystery of God, and that is so multifaceted that um, that I, I don't know that it would have you know been like a light switch. Click click on, click off all of the all of the blessings and all of the events of of uh, and all the judgments of of that time. So, um, but I do think eighty seventy is a um um. um a, a central date in in biblical history okay now i take this also to be a reference to that date um for uh several reasons um number well number one let's just say verse 32 just so just a few years later um jesus says truly i say to you this generation will not pass until all has taken place, okay? And so um, um, this has to be t taken within that, unless you can find some way to change topics between verse 27 and verse 32, okay? And remember our quotation that we take from um, um, Mr. Spock. Okay, this is, a, I didn't know this was a hermeneutical principle, but apparently it is, because it's like the third or fourth time I've refer referenced it this month. Mr. Spock in Star Trek famously said one time, and I'm sure it's a quote stolen from somebody, I don't know where, but when you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, is your answer. All right, so it is not possible. The, 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 the actual hermeneutical principle here is you interpret difficult verses by simple verses, not the other way around. Okay, that, that's the biblical equivalent of, the, of that quote from Mr. Spock. In other words, if you have a statement that is clear, definitive, non-metaphorical, non non-figurative, and it's just a straightforward statement of a, of a fact, of a truth. Um, you know, 1 Peter 3.21, baptism does also now save us, right? People will go to all kinds of other passages when they're trying to argue that baptism is not essential to salvation. People do it all the time. Uh, you know, you, you get into a discussion with some of your evangelical friends and they will run you all over the Bible trying to show you that, you know, baptism is a work and works and so on and so forth. Okay, and when they're done, when they're done, you can go back to 1 Peter 3.21 and it is still going to say what it says. Um, I've actually asked people in, in a Bible study, I, I that somebody was uh, I've done this a couple of times I think um, having an argument about baptism and so I would just hand them you know a, 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 hand them a, a pen or paper or something and say could you please just for me if you would write the shortest sentence that you can come up with that God could have used if He wanted to say baptism saves write the shortest sentence that would say that. 
And most of the time they'll hem and haul to the point where I have to end up writing it for them, but it, it's a good exercise nonetheless. And what you write down on the paper is baptism saves you. Okay, three words, baptism saves you or us. That, that's the shortest sentence that you could write that would affirm the essentiality of baptism. Okay? And then you go to 1 Peter 3.21, and effectively there is that sentence. That's what it means. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean when you're done with your doctrine, it doesn't mean baptism does not save, right? It means baptism saves. That's the only thing that sentence can mean, and it's true in 1 Peter, and unless you can time limit that or contextualize that in some way that it's not a general statement, which you can't, um, that's what it's going to mean in every other page of your Bible because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. So if, you, if, you're, if you're in, in position is baptism does not save you, well, then you have a problem. I don't. Okay? I don't have to explain for, for you know, John 3.16, for example, because I believe in faith. I believe faith saves you. I believe baptism saves you. I believe faith saves you. I believe God saves you. I believe Jesus saves you. I believe repentance saves you. I believe confession saves you. I believe hope saves you. Lots of things save you. There's like 25 or 26 different things. I think that's the right number in the in the New Testament that, that are said to save you. And you're sitting here saying, well, you were saved by 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 uh, Christ alone, through faith alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, and so on. Well, you have like seven alones because you recognize none of them alone work, right? Um, and so that's what people do. So same principle here, Johnny, or uh, uh, Nelson. Unless you can somehow prove that between verse 27 and verse 32, we just changed topics, we changed audiences, we changed events, and that word all does not apply to verse 27. Interpret the difficult concept, which is verse 27. Interpret the difficult concept through the simple one. Everything in Luke 21. That's the if you're going to limit the context at all, that's you know, Jesus starts talking about all of this destruction. Um uh starting in about verse number, verse number five. Okay, that's when the that's when the question is asked um about uh when will these things take place? Okay, what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And that will be that not one stone, speaking of the temple. Not one stone will be left uh, uh, upon another that will not be thrown down. Total destruction of the temple. What's the sign when these things are about to take place? He gives them several, starting in verse 10 and goes on down through at least verse you know, 32 or so. And he says, all has taken place. Okay, that, that's easy. And that's going to happen within this generation. Not some other generation, this generation. So that's the easy part. So Nelson, the sign of the Son of Man coming in, the, coming in great power is tied to not one stone being left upon another that had to take place within this generation. So I already know what it's talking about. I know the event that it is covering before I try to figure out what it's talking about. Simple to hard, that's the process. 32 is simple. Um, 27, perhaps not so simple. All right. 
So now let's actually deal with how on earth can the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, how on earth can that be referring to something other than the second coming? Right? Because that, that's really what we want this passage to talk about, because we know the language in Acts 1. We've seen him, as you've seen him uh, taken away, you'll see him come back again. And we take we take we take that and we apply it to um extra extra or uh, to the second coming, um. Okay, um, that's what we do with it. So we want to make that second coming. And uh, I don't know when we went over this, uh, but we did it already once. Do, do we have the, the, the um? No, Daniel seven is not what I want. Um. Matthew 26 is that one. I don't think Matthew 26 is what I want either. Um, now you'll see him sitting on the right hand. 25 is not what I want either. Um, um, are there other examples of this language being used about, about Jesus? There are. Um, let me... I'm doing this off the top of my head. Nelson, is it... One of them I think is in... First of all, you'll see the Son of Man coming. The first one I'm going to look at is in Matthew 10. Um, um, okay. Uh, when he sends the men out to, to, to take the, I guess what we call typically the limit commission to go to the cities of Israel, there is an interesting statement um, about how they're to manage themselves in Matthew, in the passing of the limited commission. Um. And it says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly, I say to you, you will have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Okay. There is a thought that um, what this means is that you will not go through all the towns of Israel until the Son of Man essentially comes behind you and also visits those towns. I, that to me seems to be a um, a forced interpretation of, of the verse. I believe he's referring here to um, the coming of Christ in his kingdom. So until the Son of Man, until, you know, their message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And effectively what Jesus is telling them is when you get persecuted in one town, don't stay there. Go ahead and move to the next one because you have more work to do then you have time in which to do it because the son of man is coming in his kingdom very soon. And so he's going to be coming before you're done with your job. Right? So I think that's what he's talking about. That I just, that doesn't have the, the power in the clouds and all of that, but I want to get you that concept about the son of man, not just coming at the end of the world, but coming in his kingdom as well. And then I think it's Matthew 16. I think it's down at the end of Matthew 16, if I remember correctly. Um, um, Matthew 16, 28, 27. Um, well, let's go ahead and start in 24. If anyone would, anyone one would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever who, for who, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give and can return for his soul? And then verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. And then he says this. So here it is. 
the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Not exactly the language, but awfully close. Come with power uh, and um, uh, uh, come in the clouds with power and glory. Here he is coming with the uh, uh, with his angels in the glory of the Father. Same kind of language, but notice what how Jesus attaches it to. He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste of death or will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So this coming of the Son of Man in, in, in his angels and in the glory of his Father, I personally believe he what he is referring to here is um, 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 a... a the 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 coming of 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 thirty to seventy. Let me say it that way, okay. Um, and some stand here, taste of death. They see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Um, I, I need to be careful here, just because of the way that um uh, the eighty seventy crowd uses passages like this. Um, what they they what they will say is that Jesus did not actually come in His kingdom until eighty seventy. I'm going to reject that position because their position is that the um, um, the power of the kingdom did not uh, uh, did not manifest itself. It was not here. It was not it was not a reality. Let me say it that way. It was not a reality until the spiritual resurrection began in AD seventy, and that is the time that Jesus truly came into his kingdom or came in his kingdom. I would argue against that from Daniel seven. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 says that when Jesus came to the Ancient of Days, he was given glory and dominion in in the greatness of his kingdom. So he's in his kingdom when he returns to the Ancient of Days, as is said by Acts 2, verse 36, and also by Hebrews 1 and verse 3, and also by Revelation... Revelation... um, Oh, where is it? One that overcomes will sit down my with me in my throne as I, as I am sit down in my father's throne. Um, what what where, where is that? Hmm. It's 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 one of the one of the seven churches of Asia. I can't. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on it. Um, it's in Revelation two or three. I just, I'll have to look it up or somebody look it up for me. Uh, I just I'm just completely drawing a break. I like <clears throat> I want to put it with Laodicea, which would be the end of chapter three, and I'm just I, I, I for some reason I can't make myself make that connection with Laodicea, but I in my brain, it's at Laodicea. So it would be the end of Revelation 3, but somebody who would find that for me. Um, so I, I would I would not say that he comes in his kingdom at AD 70. I think he comes in his kingdom in, 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 in Acts 2. Uh, but the point being, it's not the end of time. It's not the end of time. He's coming in the, with his angels in the glory of his father, at the same time that he comes in his kingdom, and some standing here will not die before that happens. Okay, so again, that's very similar to this generation will not pass until all these things take place. So, um, and we need to grab, and I'm trying to um, if I go to Matthew 24, the very same language is in Matthew 24, um, verse 30, 30, I think it maybe actually just be verse 30. Um, yeah, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trump, and so on. And we read that, and we think, oh, man, 
that that has to be the second coming. That sounds exactly what the uh, second coming is like. Uh, and the problem with that is the word in verse 29, immediately. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. And those days, once again, we have the same structure here down in verse 34. This generation will not pass until all these things take place. Well, all these things that take place in those days, and that happens immediately. So there's no time gap. So if, 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 if the things of verse 29 through 30 are modified by verse 34, and they are, all these things have to take place within this generation. And it happens immediately. And immediately within the lifespan of this generation, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The thing I think you need to look for is back up here in verse 29, that same language is also there. Um, and I don't know if you can see that or not. Uh, and Nelson asked the question, but if it, does that make it better? What that is, is a listing, and your Bible may have exactly the same thing. That's just the, the center column references from... Uh, from the Logos version of the ESV, which I think is standardized. I think if you just had an ESV Bible, you'd have those same footnotes depending on how, how it's formatted in your margin or in the center column or wherever. Um, but what that is is a pretty good listing, a pretty good listing of all the times that language is found in the Old Testament. So like if I hover over Isaiah 13, uh, 10 there, for the stars of, of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. That's in Isaiah 13. And off the top of my head, I think if you go back to Isaiah 13, 1, Isaiah says this is a, a burden or an oracle against Babylon. So this is ancient Babylon. You know, Isaiah writing 7, 750 to 700 B.C. Uh, Babylon falls finally in uh, 536 B.C. Um, and that's, that's clearly not second coming. It's not even the first coming of Jesus the stars stopped giving their light um, 500 years, 540 years before Jesus was born. So the point is, when a Jew would read this language, they would have so many different thoughts about it than we would have. They wouldn't think second coming because, as you can see, just from that list in their Old Testament prophets, they had already seen this language, you know, half a dozen or a dozen times. So they knew what this language meant, and it didn't mean end of the world. What it usually meant was the end of a nation. If you, if you take those and run all, all those references down, usually it is the ending of a nation. God, the day of the Lord coming in judgment of a particular nation, of Babylon or here of Israel or so on. And so when the disciples who actually asked the question, Back up here, same just as in Luke's account, the the disciples are there and they talk about the buildings of the temple. Now, is, is it Mark thirteen that gives um because Mark thirteen is the parallel account. Um, uh, yeah, Mark gives a little more detail. One of the disciples says to him, "Look, teacher, look at the look at the temple grounds. Look how wonderful this is." And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite to the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came and asked him privately, tell us about these things. So it's even the group, of, if, if Mark's account is directly parallel to Matthew's account, um, and it looks like it is because Matthew 20, 24, 3, 
He's on the Mount of Olives. So they're walking through the temple. Jesus says, everything, everything in there is going to be torn, torn down. And they walk from the temple outside the city and climb up to the Mount of Olives. And I can imagine the conversation going on among the, um, among the, 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 the disciples. What, what in the world? I thought you were here to restore the kingdom to Israel. And Peter, Andrew, James, and John come to him privately, that inner circle comes to him privately and says, um, could you tell us a little bit more about that? And Peter, Andrew, James, and John, according to Mark's account, are the ones that are here and hear these words. Those are students of the Old Testament. When they heard this, they knew what it meant. When they heard the stars will fall from heaven, they knew a nation's about to fall. And the nation that is about to fall is ours. That would have been a significant conversation. Uh, it's one reason when I'm reading through the book of Peter, you know, we're studying First Peter in the second hour, and I've said that revelation of Jesus Christ, that then all of that that he's talking about there, the fiery trial, Second uh, Peter 3, remember the predictions of our Lord. Uh, P- Peter was there. P- Peter was right there on the Mount of Olives, excuse me, during the, what we call the Olivet Discourse. He was right there. He was, one, he, was, he was actually there when Jesus said these words. And so when he says in 2 Peter 3, you need to remember the predictions of our Lord, um, he, he would have a very good memory of, of that, probably a very good memory of it, even unaided by the Holy Spirit. This would be the kind, this would be the kind of statement. I mean, imagine if you were sitting with Jesus and, 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 he, and he were walking by the, the White House and the Capitol building and the Lincoln Memorial and all of that. And you were walking through all of that in, in, in Washington, D.C., and Jesus just said, uh, there's coming a day real soon when not one stone is going to be left upon another in this city. Um, okay. Number one, I can see why they went back and got some clarification on it. And number two, I'm going to think they would remember that conversation. So, um, again, so Nelson, that's what I would do with this. I would, I would, can I get back to Luke 21 here? Which way do I need to go? Sometimes Logos and I have a different opinion about my forward and back button that should, which way to get back to the text I was on. I, I think it's forward and they think it's back or vice versa. So anyway, um, I believe this is referring to his coming in judgment in AD 70. It's a figurative language of God coming in his judgment. There's a similar, I don't have this one off the top of my head. I don't see Travis here this morning. Travis would probably have it because I think the last time I did this, he found it for me and he found it for me and then I forgot where it is. Uh, there, there's a very similar image, not of, of Jesus, but of God himself. I want to say it's like in Zechariah. Um, I could be, Zechariah or Isaiah would be my guess. Where that same language is, that's what I was hoping there would be a, 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 an Old Testament reference to this on one of these things. Isaiah 34.4? No, it's not Isaiah 34.4. It's not Daniel 7.13. I, I don't know where it is, and the center column references aren't helping me. Somebody may be able to find it for me, but where the Lord is coming on the clouds, uh, and it's just a statement of his coming judgment. Uh, that would be a really good verse to find, and I just don't have it off the top of my head here. But uh, it's, it's findable. Just just find you know the Lord coming in the clouds in the Old Testament. All right? Or I think maybe Old King James may have writing on the clouds. Maybe. Uh, again, off the top of my head, and I don't, I don't have it. So somebody, again, if you, if you can, I see you know Jonathan's out there, and Johnny was there, I think, earlier. So at least I got a, a couple other preachers in the room with me, but um, if you can find it, that that would be helpful. 
Um, not that somebody who's not a preacher couldn't find it as well. Y'all know how to work a Bible program in a concordance, but you know, if somebody would, I'd appreciate it. So anyway, that's best I got with it, man. Uh, it's figurative language. Uh, and, um, behold, he goes up like a cloud, like the clouds and his chariot, like the, that might be it, Jonathan, Jeremiah 413. That's not where I thought it was. That, that might be it. Um, yeah, let, let's go with that for now. But since that language is not, it's not, um, it, it's not, um, it's not uncommon. All right, it's almost it's almost idiomatic, if you will, for uh, for for the way the Jews conceived of major judgments and major actions by God. And the problem we have with it is that we take it and we apply it exclusively to the second coming, and that would be wrong. It would be, and, and it's the same problem, I believe. Just just FYI. One of the reasons I reject the, the doctrine of the realized eschatologist is because I think they make the same error just about 8070. We take all of that language and we apply it to the second coming. And I believe that's an error, interpretive error. They take all that language and every time they find it, they apply it to 8070. And I believe that's also an interpretive error. Um, you really have to spend some time in the context and 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 work your way through it uh to, to, to determine you know, where does this actually point? Um, and so that would be, that would be a, a, a common challenge for all of us. So in my opinion, Johnny, or Nelson rather, excuse me, um, this is, this is a reference to the coming judgment of AD 70 and it's just in figurative language. Okay. Um, see what else we have in there. I saw some other questions that might go right along with that, uh, that I need to, I'm, I'm keep pushing, pushing, um, Jonathan's question from the start of the program farther and farther back. Um, Valletta asked just a second ago, I, on this topic, I'm assuming, um, what does verse 29 mean? Um, hold on. Luke, Jonathan just put up Luke or Isaiah 19, 1, the oracle concerning Egypt, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. That's the one I was thinking of, John, uh, uh, Jonathan. Thank you. Isaiah 19, 1. That's the one I was thinking of. Uh, not that, you know, Jeremiah 4 just adds to it. But the one that one the one that was in my brain that I couldn't pull out was uh, the Oracle against Egypt, Isaiah nineteen one. Thank you, sir. Um, Valletta, what was verse twenty nine mean? I'm assuming the only verse twenty nine that I think I used so far today. And here I am arguing with Logos about whether I need to go forward or backwards. There it is, uh, Isaiah twenty four. I'm assuming you mean Matthew twenty Matthew twenty four twenty nine. Uh, would be my guess because I think that's the passage I was on when that question popped up. So I'm gonna go ahead and act like that is the answer, and, or is the, uh, the 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 right verse that's in question there. Um, and I would have the same. Okay, thank you, Valetta, for the confirmation there. Um, I'd have the same answer to you. Okay, the tribulation. The tribulation is what he just says earlier up here in the um, uh, in this text. Where is it? Uh, verse 21, after you see the signs, okay, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, never will be, right? And then we have, and I'm not going to take the time to do it, but if, if you would, in, in my print Bible, I have uh, a, th this phrase in verse 22, and if those days, but for the sake of those days, and so on. Uh, you, you're in Matthew 24. You look for two phrases: those days and these things. That starts back as early, I think, as chapter 22, 
Um, I, the first time I, I saw somebody do this was uh, with, um, I say I saw it, I wasn't there, but uh, Brother Franklin Camp, uh, when, when he would teach this section, would, would emphasize that phrase, these things in those days. And that's a really good way to get your mind wrapped around this context, starting about Matthew 22, going down through the end of Matthew 24. Look for these things in those days, because you have the tribulation takes place in those days. And if you skip down here to verse number um, uh, 34, you have all these things. So when you put it all together, you see, when you see all these things, verse 33, okay? So all these things will take place by the end of those days. That's the construction. When you piece this all together, and again, I'm not gonna take the time to do that this morning, but when you piece that all together, that's what you come up with. All these things will take place in those days. All right. Now, to verse 29, the great tribulation takes place in those days. So the signs begin, or the beginning of the end, if you will. The end is not yet. That's like verse 9, 8 or 9 of Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a witness among all nations. That's, that, that's much of the book of Revelation. That's much of the, the, the work of Paul and, and, so, and Peter even and so on. So all of that goes together, okay? When you see these signs take place, pray, when you, when, in, notably verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, we were in Daniel 9 a few days ago. Uh, when you see that happen, if you're in Judea, flee to the mountains. The typical response to being in that kind of situation would be to flee back to the city. Jesus says, do the opposite. Go against your instinct. Flee to the mountains, not to the city. Get out of Jerusalem. Luke 21, when you see Jerusalem circled, encircled with armies, know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Don't go to the city. If you're, on, if you're up in your housetop, you're sitting in, maybe you're in the city already, and you're up in the housetop and you hear the report of, uh, of the Roman armies coming, don't go back down and, and, and pack up your house. It's too late. Run. Get out of your house now. If you're in the field, don't turn back to get your cloak. Your cloak. Okay, just run. Alas for women who are pregnant and nursing infant. Again, look this here. Not in general. Alas in those days. Right? It's even hard today to get to take a road trip with a young baby, isn't it? Especially with car seats. I mean, it was easier back when you didn't have car seats. You just throw the kids back up on the your, you know, the rear deck behind the rear window, just you know, right along. But no, not today. They're strapped in and they hate it. It's tough even today going on a road trip with an infant, much or be even pregnant. Okay. That and then how imagine how much imagine how much harder it was on foot, right? Pray that your flight be not in winter. That's going to stink or on the Sabbath, okay? Now, I don't really, I would actually prefer if I had to flee, my flight be in the winter because traveling anywhere in Florida in the summer is, particularly if you had to walk, that'd be brutal. I'd rather go in the winter. Now, if I lived in Wisconsin, hey, Christine, um, I would not want to flee in the winter. That would make it much harder. So this is geographically limited. Or on the Sabbath, now, other than the fact there's more traffic on a Saturday around here, and that's actually true. We have worse traffic on the Saturday weekends than we do on the, in, 
during the week because we're a vacation spot. Um, but Israel, what's the, what's the problem with fleeing from Jerusalem on the Sabbath? Well, the, the gates are shut. In the days of Nehemiah forward, the gates are shut. You can't get out of the city. So if, if the report of Rome comes um, on, a, on, a, on the Sabbath, on a Saturday, you're stuck. You may not be able to get out. Okay? Four, then, then, when you see these things taking place, then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been, no, nor will ever be. All right? Now, then verse 29, immediately after the days of that great tribulation, immediately the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the earth, tribes of the earth shall mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a, with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the, four, four, from, from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to, other, to the other. Now, boy, particularly that verse 31 thing and all that, as we just talked about with, with Nelson's question, particularly all of that just, I mean, I get it. You read it, and that sounds immediately in your brain, like that has to be the end of the world. And here's the tricky part is if God were wanting to describe the end of the world, guess how he would do it? If God were writing an apocalyptic passage that described the events of the end of the world, guess what language that's consistent with the with the the with biblical literature and biblical forms, guess how that verse would read? That verse would read, the stars are going to fall out of heaven. The powers of the heavens are going to be shaken. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And he will come with the clouds with great with power and great glory. He'll send out his angels and divide the sheep from the goat or however you want to say. It would, it would read exactly the same. And there's the problem. There is the interpretive problem because the Bible uses this language. As I as I pointed out earlier, where, where, which one was I on? I was on uh, on P, I think, over here. As I pointed out earlier, if you can read those verses, in every one of those verses you have right there, in every one of them, portions, maybe not the entirety of this language, but the, the motif that is here is used in every judgment. What is that? One, two, three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. There's a dozen different references there, and that idea of the sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood, the and, and the stars falling out of heaven, all of that language is used at least a dozen other places in, in the Bible, and that's the problem. Okay, you have to train your brain not to assume you know what each individual occurrence of that is referring to. You have to train your brain not to jump to a conclusion because that's what this language sounds like, because that language does sound like that. And if God wanted to write a verse that dealt directly with the end of time and the end of the world, and, and if he stayed consistent with his use, in, use of language in the rest of the Bible, that's exactly the language he would use to describe it. But the key is, and then we go back to we thought we, where we started this hour, Find the, find the easy statements and allow the easy statements to direct your attention on the hard ones. 
The easy statement here is the word immediately and then the tribulation. I know both of those things. I know when the tribulation took place and I understand the word immediately. All right. And then I tie that obviously down to verse 33 or verse 34 rather. This generation will not pass. And so then what I have here, Valletta, is immediately after the tribulation, God is going to come in judgment of a nation. And again, that nation is Israel. So that's what I would do with verse 29. All right. Uh, there's one other thing here on this line I want to get to um, that I saw. Where did somebody put it? Um, where did it go? Uh, Valletta again. Um, doubling up on Valletta. Here we go. How can I determine what is figurative language? Great question. Great question. Um, if you were sitting in a in a in a school of preaching somewhere, um, and somebody were asked that question, and, and you were studying rather, well, let me no no, you were studying the the topic of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just the 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 the, the, the science of interpretation, and when applied to the Bible, to biblical interpretation. What rules do you use, right? Throughout history, there have been various systems of interpretation that have been applied to the Bible. Um, a very common one is to allegorize a lot of biblical prophecy and of the Bible. Um, and thankfully, that has largely fallen out of, um, of favor. The other extreme is that essentially there is no figurative language in the Bible, which is just silliness. But you take every biblical, particularly when dealing with prophecy, you take every part of it literally. And so the thousand years is a literal thousand years and so on. That's where the doctrine of premillennialism and other things uh, 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 comes from. Um, the, um, the basic way, the basic rule that I was taught, the one I think is, is the right one, is that when you come to a text, the rule is the verse is literal unless the context demands that it be figurative. So the thought is, I will take it literally unless something demands that it is literal or that it's figurative. So, for example, uh, again, maybe ask my dad tomorrow, but um, there is a, a passage in, in Revelation, and, it, and, and the old King James puts it in some kind of, of the, 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 the numbers in, in, in a way that maybe we wouldn't use the numbers. I can't I can't remember. That's what's in my brain, and I'm trying to remember um, – um, how it's phrased, I don't remember, but it, it, it's it's a a save about how many horses would be involved at the Battle of Armageddon, and how many horses would the they would be riding on, and I remember actually I saw this in some of my dad's notes years ago. He had looked in an almanac or something, or you know probably an encyclopedia back then. This was well before days of the internet, um, and at the time there were not enough horses to meet the number that were needed in the book of Revelation. So if you took it literally, we knew the book of Revelation could not come to, you know, the battle of Armageddon could not take place because there weren't enough horses in the world to take care of that problem. So, you know, you could just sit, sit back and relax until somebody bred a whole lot more, you know, how many more horses or, or passages that talk about, you know, a third of the stars of heaven fall on the earth. Okay. Um, um, a third of the stars of heaven fall on the earth. Uh, that's a physical impossibility, all right? Um, um, 
and so on. So, um, um, but yeah, um, you can't have that. You can't have a third of the stars of heaven falling on the earth because the earth is smaller than even one star. So language, language like that, um, that you know just from looking at it, can't be, can't be literal. Uh, or when Jesus tells, uh, speaking of Herod, and he says to Herod, go tell that fox. All right, well, the, the, that, that Herod is not literally a fox. That's a metaphor. Herod is, you know, sly and sneaky like a fox or something of that nature, but he's not actually a fox. So there, there are some clear examples, but that's the rule. Take the, take the verse literally. Uh, and and, and when, you're, when you're dealing with words, same idea. When you come across a word in the Bible, uh, you know, I talked the other day, I was talking about marriage and divorce. I, I don't like it when people try to redefine the word adultery to answer problems they have with marriage and divorce. Because the rule is you take a word by its primary and literal meaning, unless, again, the context demands otherwise. So don't, don't find me the third or fourth definition of a word that may be some kind of figurative kind of definition of the word and try to um, uh, make that be the, the meaning of, um, of, a, of a passage when, when, um, um, when you have um, uh, a clear meaning of the word and someone, you know, adultery means adultery. It doesn't have to mean anything else. And there's nothing in the context that means I have to make that spiritual adultery or some other thing. No, it's, and we're talking about marriage. Guess what adultery means? It means adultery. Now, when you're talking about a nation committing adultery on God, uh, as Jeremiah said, Jeremiah chapter two, I believe is what, I, well, I don't know what I'm thinking of. Uh, Jeremiah chapter two. Um, obviously, you can't physically do that. You're going to have to. You're going to have to do that spiritually and metaphorically, figuratively. So that that's the general rule. Now, Valetta, I can give you the general rule but you're going to spend a lifetime learning how to apply that rule. Okay. Because it's sometimes there are passages where it's really, really hard. Uh, one that I've always gotten from my dad that I thought was good. Is at the uh, church? I believe the church at Philadelphia. Um, and it is said to the church at Philadelphia, you shall have tribulation for 10 days. And a lot of times when you're reading through commentaries on revelation, they'll come to that passage and they'll ask the question, was that a figurative, a literal 10-day tribulation for the church at Philadelphia, or is that figurative for a short period of time? And if you're not careful, you can kind of spiral out of control trying to answer that question. And one of the things I love uh, love about my dad was, um, or is, that, that it, it, the way that he handles that. He says, you know who would have known the answer to that? He says, the church at Philadelphia would have known the answer to that. And then he says, guess how they would have known the answer to that? They would have started from the time that the day the persecution started, you know, when things went bad and they would have gone one. And then two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And if on day 11, the persecution stopped, then the 10 days was literal. If on day 11 it continued, then it was figurative. And that's the best answer I've ever heard to that question. There's no way I can sit here and tell you, is that 10 days literal or is that 10 days figurative? I can't. 
So I'd, I'd go from there. Um, um, I will say, though, like when studying the book of Revelation, there are some times when numbers are so specific, like 42 months or like 1,290 days. That, that, you know, that, that stands in pretty stark contrast to 1,000 years or something of that nature. So there are times when you would you would expect a figurative language, figurative number, to be one thing, where and a literal number to be something else. You know, something of that nature, like uh, the number. Remember the number of fish that were caught in the net. Um, it's a very specific number, and I, I say that because I can't remember the number of fish. It was one it was one fifty something that were caught in the fish. Very specific. They were caught in the net. Very specific number. Probably doesn't have any significance to it. They probably actually just counted the number of fish that they caught and wrote, they remembered when they're, when, when, when writing the gospel accounts that they remembered how many fish were caught in the nets, that kind of thing. Okay. There are times when it, when it, when it seems like at least it gives it away and gives you a clue, but your question, that's the answer to it. The application of it, man, that can be, that can be really, really hard. Um, thank you, Sherry. 153. Thank you. I knew it was in the 150 areas. Um, We'll get to one. I just want to mention this. I, I, it was, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Jonathan, you were the first person to question in, and it was just one I needed to think about, and I didn't get to it. What is the wildest thing you've ever encountered as a preacher? I, I don't know. I don't have. Let me let me think about that overnight, Jonathan. I hope, hopefully you'll be here tomorrow. That'd be a great question to ask when my dad's in the room too. Uh, so I'm gonna hold that one till tomorrow, and and. And he's done this longer than I have, and he's done it in several more nations than I've done it. And so um, he probably um, would uh, be a good one to answer that question, and, and we could have a little more fun with it than if I answered that myself. So, Jonathan, try to make sure you're here tomorrow morning, and I'll get my dad uh, to uh, answer that question. And that, that'll be a, uh, a light, maybe a little bit of light, lighthearted one we can have together with him, because I think that'll, that'll be really good. Um, I've got a couple. Uh, you know who we need to have. We need to get Steve Higginbotham to come on tomorrow because what is it about Steve Higginbotham? He has every story. It's just some guys collect stories like that. Uh, I never have. I don't know why, but some guys just are amazing at uh, at collecting stories. So let, let's uh, hold that for tomorrow. I think that'll be a real good conversation when we have a couple other guys in the room with us. So uh, anyway, uh, thank you all for the questions this morning. Hopefully we... Uh, helped you um, and uh, and were able to um, uh, guide you along, along some of those ways and at least um, have some um, um, things to consider as you think about these issues going forward. So let me go ahead and begin to uh, get the room set up here to take our little break. And when we do, uh, or after we do, we will come back here and continue our study of the book of First Peter. So give me just a couple, three minutes, and I will be right back with you and we will continue our study momentarily.
Okay, everybody, welcome back to the uh, second hour from the deep end here. Uh, and of course, in this hour, we uh, do begin, do have a, uh, a what am I saying? We continue. That's what I'm trying to say. We continue our look at the book of uh, uh, First Peter uh, together. Uh, Melissa, yes, Preacher Stories would be a fun Friday night group thing. Maybe we can do that sometime. That'd be a pretty easy thing to put together. Um, and Christine. We do still have Marvin over there on the counter, and my grandson was here yesterday, and he didn't he didn't he didn't move Marvin. Uh, he played with my tablet. That's he played with my iPad the whole time he was here. He has his dinosaur games on my um, on my iPad. So, and I do have to be careful because I use my iPad when I teach Bible class and stuff on Sunday, and because we have a we have the projector system and it's tied to an Apple TV, so I can just screen share what's on my iPad and use that as my notes for my class which is great. I always have to be careful before I load up my iPad to make sure that nothing that my grandson has opened is, um, I don't want dinosaurs jumping off the screen at, at the, at the, the, the widow lady sitting there on the, on the, on the pew. I don't want that. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, my grandson, oh, I should know the answer to that, Christine. Uh, seven? I think he's seven. So anyway, but uh, let's turn our attention back to First Peter here and get back into our study. For the uh, remainder of this hour, again, do not forget that Beth Brewer will be up here at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Thankful Soul and the 3 o'clock session, her second, uh, go, go around with that. I believe we'll follow that in short order. So let's go ahead and grab the uh, uh, screen share going and turn our attention back to First uh, Peter. We're here kind of in the middle section of this. Um, we spent some time yesterday. Um, firming up some of my, my ideas here about, again, why I think this is still still largely a Jewish uh, section of the text um, and focused in, in for some time on that word um, impartially. And I believe that would be very critical for a, a Jewish person to have the proper understanding of, of how God was being impartial in terms of his judgment on them uh, and also on the Christians who uh, might be tempted to, to uh, Turn away from their um, from their past. Uh, we spent some time talking about the feudal ways inherited from their forefathers, uh, and I believe that's the futility that's there in Romans seven and Romans eight. Uh, now, other other commentators or you know teachers of this book uh, might come along and and say you know to conform to the passions of your for, former ignorance is is speaking to the Gentiles. Uh, they may talk about the feudal ways inherited from the forefathers again of the Gentiles living in the continue to live after that they're, they're pagan gods and so on. And, you know, I'll be, I'll be as fair as I can on this. I, I they could possibly be right on that. Um, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, try my best to be at least pretty, you know, limited, um, in, in my, my scope of some of these things. I, I, I prefer to, to have a much stricter. Is that, is that the right word? More strict, um, approach to this in terms of the application of it. Um, but I, I, it's possible I could be wrong there, but I don't, I don't think I am. I just, this, this is, uh, I'm, I've got my, the specific arguments I made yesterday, the concept of children, uh, the concept of, you know, the, the fact that it quotes old Testament law, uh, the comparison of the, of the sacrifices and all of that. Um, so I've got the specifics of the argumentation that I used with you, but I have to admit, as I just, as I, as, as I read through this, um, this is almost like a, 
a feel thing to me. Uh, I, I don't know that I have the aha got you moment, which tells me I know this is Jewish, but as I read it, it's, it's like a gut thing. My gut is just telling me that Peter is still focused on his countrymen right here. Uh, and that while maybe those who read the letter might, might have thought about it in more general terms, I just it feels Jewish to me as I read through it. And that, that as much as anything, is, is why I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be as limited as I can in the application of it, okay? Um, but anyway, uh, that, that's just uh, where I am on it. And, uh, you know, I'm open to other discussion as, as the case may be, but uh, I'm going to stick with that until somebody moves me off of it. So um, he is telling them that you have been ransomed from that. Uh, and since you've been ransomed from it, obviously no need to turn back to it. Um, and he makes the point here, and I believe this is a significant point, and this is about where we're picking up from the new material today. I believe we touched on this just briefly as we were closing yesterday. He says, not with uh, perishable things such as silver or gold, um, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or without blemish. Okay. Now, they, they of course, would know the significance, once again, particularly if this is a Jewish audience. They would know the significance and the, the legal requirement for the, for the blood offerings, the the, the blood offerings for sin and for other things as well. The lamb had to be uh, without spot or without blemish. That was the only thing that qualified it as a lamb or for, a, for an offering. Um, the contrast, though, is not so much about the, about the fact that the lamb was without spot or without blemish. The contrast really is with the enduring nature of the offering, the enduring nature of the blood. You have been ransomed by a blood that is precious, of a lamb that is without spot or without blemish, and he was known before the foundation of the world. And so that that blood, that, that offering, is never waning in its efficacy. Here's why I believe that is important. Uh, once again, I, I would direct your attention back to the, uh, the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, I would turn your attention back again to chapter 10, where if you have, well, let's just go ahead and do it. Why? Why? That's why we have a Bible program here that I can open. Um, let's just turn our attention back to Hebrews chapter 10, switching to the King James, uh, just because I don't want to open up a second other tab. Here we are in verse 26. We were here yesterday, so I'll try to make this brief. You sin willfully after you receive the knowledge of the truth, right? You have received the knowledge of the truth. That is essentially parallel to the concept that you have been ransomed from the feudal ways of your fathers. You have been ransomed, okay? How did you how did you turn away from their feudal ways? You received the knowledge of the faith and obviously you you obeyed it. And uh, as Peter will turn in just, the, in just the next couple of verses and say that this ransom, this redeeming was accomplished by the incorruptible word of God. So that's how this was accomplished in, in, the, um, uh, in your life. Same thing with Hebrews. You were, you have received the knowledge of the truth, all right? That knowledge of the truth, just what, 12, 12 14 verses earlier says, uh, for by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified or those that are being sanctified, the ESV has, all right? So by one offering, as opposed to, the, the uh, uh, repetitive offerings that are offered year by year at the start chapter 10. So there's your comparison. Here's an offering made one year. It, 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 takes, it, it makes atonement for my sins and the national sins for this year. 
Okay, I believe that's what he's talking about. The Hebrews writer's talking about here is a reference to the, the Day of Atonement offerings as is described in Leviticus uh, 16, I believe. Excuse me, 16, I believe it is. And year by year, and for every year's worth of sins, you have to come and make another atonement. So effectively, well, the effectively the efficacy, if I want to use the same word effectively, three times in a row, <laughs> if I want to keep using the word effective over and over again, that's what I'm going to do. But the um, the efficacy of the of the Day of Atonement offerings waned. It was good for a year, and then it waned. And now all the sins I've committed that year, I need another offering. And then I need another offering. And then I need another offering. I have to keep renewing the offering. Well, chapter four, or verse 14 of chapter 10 says, nope, Jesus did it by one offering. That one offering perfects forever. <coughs> Excuse me, those that are being sanctified. All right, it's an imperishable blessing. He then says in verse 26, you have received the knowledge of that. You know the nature of that offering. It's perfect. If you then sin willfully, if you turn away from it, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. The one offering has been made. There's not another one coming. That's the last offering. He did it. He sat down by the right hand of God exalted. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 says when he had by himself purged our sins. He sat down by the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what he did. He's done. Every priest stands daily, not this one. He made his one offering. He ascended back on high and he sat down. He was done. If you sin, if you turn back after that, there's no more sacrifice for sins. But what is in your future? A certain and fearful looking for of judgment, fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Because you have trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant. Notice the connection there. You have counted the blood of the covenant, the offering, the one offering. You have counted, counted it as an unholy thing. And hath, and hath done despite unto the spirit of grace, and so on. Okay? Same idea here. You have, you have been redeemed or ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold. Okay? That's even more enduring in terms of the metaphor, the imagery that is here. That is even more enduring than the year-by-year -year offering for the sacrifice from sins. So I believe he's actually talking about the same concept, but to me, the metaphor is even stronger. How long does silver endure? How long does gold endure? Quite a bit longer. Now, it can be stolen. It can be lost. Things, Other things can happen to it but it's not as if it just disappears overnight. What you have is even more enduring than silver or gold. What you have is the precious blood of Christ, and, that, and he, the one who shed that blood, was known before the foundation of the world. Now, what's the message? See, this is why we can't forget the message. 
the message is you are standing in the true grace of God. And what you have in front of you is that true grace. It is founded upon he who was known before the foundation of the world and his offering then was known before the foundation of the world. God always knew what he was about to do, what his plan was. It's according to the foreknowledge of God. I mean, the, the, the more I have studied First Peter in my life, just the tighter the argumentation of this book gets to me. This is so, so well written. So well written. To tie it all together into their into into them or for them. If you're a Jew and you're reading this first chapter of First Peter, I mean, if you're thinking about wavering and you have an honest heart at all, what what Peter's doing here is just he is locking you down. That you can, there's no way you can turn away now and not know what you've done if you're honest at all. That's what I believe is happening here. It's why I think this is so heavily Jewish. Because he is writing to his countrymen and he is telling them in, in with, with perhaps more subtlety than is being done in Hebrews. Because Hebrews, you know, I put Hebrews five, six, seven years later. Well, maybe not. Yeah, five or six years later. And time's up. Time is up. He that's coming is going to come and will not delay. Time, it, it's over. Okay? It's over, man. You got you to gotta make your choice now. <coughs> so that, that, you know, the book of Hebrews is like Jude saying, some you save, pulling them out of the fire. That's Hebrews. If you don't do this now, you're about to die. Peter's saying the same thing with a lot, with, some, with, with, a, with a little bit more of a velvet touch. But the construction, as I read this first chapter, it is just, well, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's just, it's just masterful. And, and I'll tell you, for, for me, that is a, a significant change. Um, I used to struggle completely with writings of Peter because he doesn't, he, he doesn't write the way that I would write. Uh, I, 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 I study Paul much better. And Paul makes sense to me as I read, just natively, the way Paul structures a letter makes so much more sense to me. It took me a long time to develop an appreciation for the writings of Peter because it just, it, it, it just seemed as I read it disjointed. And part of the problem I had was, at least my personal problem, is I, I taught First and Second Peter for a long time. I taught it as more generic. And it wasn't until I realized, frankly, I started seeing the connection between Peter and the book of Hebrews. We're all through this study. We're going to keep going back to the book of Hebrews because the, 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 the longer I read First Peter and I started seeing the themes, I'm like, man, that, that really sounds like the Hebrews writer. It's different. I mean, I don't think, he, I don't think Peter wrote Hebrews. I think he's dead by then. But Boy, there's there's thematically and structurally there is there's a lot of continuity between these two books. And when I started making that connection, I'm like, oh, oh wait, wait a minute. Problem number one is, I've, I've I've made the error that I see other people make, which is I generalized something that was specific, and that helped me with First Peter. And that, that's why I'm a hold 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 to that. But once I did that, 
boy, it just it started clicking in place to me about what he's trying to accomplish here. And I believe that's exactly what he's after. You think because of your circumstances, the power of the blood of the Christ is not what you thought it was. You are beginning to doubt that. It's not. Obviously, it is precious. It comes from the Christ. And I love how he says he says here the precious blood of Christ and not the precious blood of Jesus. The Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the restorer of the kingdom, all of those things. He calls him not by his name, but by his title. Remember Matthew chapter 24 as we were looking over there? When you hear, when you see all these things begin to take place and the days are shortened and somebody says, lo, the Christ is here in the wilderness. Lo, he's there in the inner room. Do not go out to them because that's not where I'll be. They're going to try to rally around someone they see as the Christ, as the anointed Messiah of the people, as the deliverer of the people. And I believe what Peter is doing here is telling you, telling, telling his audience, the one you have fallen or followed rather is the Christ, known before the foundation of the world. His blood is precious. The efficacy of that has, you know, Hebrews 10, 14, that offering has made you perfect forever because it's imperishable. Silver or gold, even that can fade away. Not the power of the blood of the one who is truly the Christ. He is like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He is qualified and has made the offering, and that offering was known before the foundation of the world. And so we go right back up here to the beginning of the book, and lo and behold, that's where we started. This is done according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Once again, nothing has gone awry here. Nothing has happened here that is unanticipated. Don't think it's strange, he says in chapter 4, concerning the fiery trial that has come upon you. Do not think it strange. Why? Because it's according to the foreknowledge of God. It is covered by the precious blood of the Christ, and he was known before the foundation of the world. You're in the true grace of God. But was manifest in these last times for the sake of you. All right? In these last times, one more time. Guess what I think that's referring to? I believe that is referring to the last times of the end of the age. The revelation of Jesus Christ. We just spent the first, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we just spent the entire first hour of the program talking about all those passages and we've talked about them here even, even in the study of First Peter. I do not think, you know, we, we typically refer to the last days, the last hour, the last uh, times, whatever. We typically refer to it as the Christian age. Inside of Churches of Christ, that's typically how we teach the last days or the last age. This is another point that I'm not going to sit and argue with people over. If, if somebody else is teaching this class um, and they say the, the, that the that uh, that he was manifest for you in the last times for the sake of you. Okay, great, great. Um, first of all, I don't know that that's true. 
Think about that for a second. When was Jesus manifested? So he would have been manifested, starting with his earthly ministry, up to the crucifixion, and then up to the ascension. After that, he's gone. And he sent another comforter, another advocate, the Holy Spirit, to take his place. He's not manifested from Acts 2 forward, at least not as a normative cause. He appears, to, he appears to Stephen, or at least Stephen sees him in a vision. And he appears to Paul in a physical way. In terms of a literal manifestation of the Son of God, of, of him, he was never manifested in the last times if the last times begin in Acts 2. Very similar. Guess where I'm going? Guess what, guess what book I'm going to? I'm going to the book of Hebrews. That, that's the book I'm going to. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 1. I may have mentioned this in the past. But this is the passage that convinced me I was wrong about the last times and the last days. Here in Hebrews 1, and I read through it all my life. I, I was probably 40 years old, not 40. I was, I was probably in my 30s before I read this and, and the light clicked. Um, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time and time passed unto the fathers by the prophets, right? So there's your path. In time past, through a variety of different ways and different means, God spoke to the fathers. So the fathers of the Hebrews, you know, we'd call them the patriarchs, right? He spoke to them by prophets. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and Joshua, and all the way up to Elijah and Elisha, and then all of the written prophets. He spoke to them by prophets. So there's the path. God has a message. And oh, well, literally, he would, God has a message. He, he would deliver it, the word would speak it, the Holy Spirit would hear it, and the Holy Spirit would then provide it to the prophets, and the prophets would speak it to the people. That's the, that's the chain by which it happened. That's what the Hebrews writer says happened in time past. Hath, and notice that's in the past tense. So not has, not is, or not is rather, has, hath, past tense. In these last days, spoken, again, past tense, unto us by his son. By the time the book of Hebrews is written, number one, the entirety of the revelation is not done. So in chapter two, the Hebrews writer says, um, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began um, to be spoken by the Lord, was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and so on. Okay, At the first, this great salvation, at the first, first of what? Well, the first of the beginning of the, of the preaching of the gospel. Great. Was spoken by Jesus, spoken by the Lord. Completed action. It's already done. Was confirmed. That message is confirmed, but the bearing of witness and so on from other passages still goes on. So back up here to Hebrews 1. Hath, past tense, spoken by his son. When did God stop speaking by his son? Well, 
the last we have of Jesus speaking on the earth in terms of giving revelation, speaking of the great salvation, would be the 40 days that's listed there in Acts chapter 1 where he spoke to the apostles about things concerning the kingdom. And then he ascended on high. And then what did he do? He sent the Holy Spirit. And the, the apostles began to speak in tongues, Acts 2.4, as who directed them? As the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. So in the Acts 2, post-Acts post 2 age, what was the path by which God spoke to his people? Through the Holy Spirit, by prophets. That's verse 1. There was a period of time at the first when he spoke by his son. That time is completed. Half spoken. Past tense. And it clicked one day as I was reading that verse. Wait a minute. If the last days is the Christian age, starting in Acts 2, when exactly did God speak through Jesus from Acts 2 forward? He spoke to Jesus, he spoke to through Jesus at the first. But now, confirmed unto us by the, the apostles that heard him, and subsequent to that, the apostles inspired the, the prophets inspired by the Spirit. At the first. At the first of what? These last days. And critically, it does not say those last days. The Hebrews writer is in the last days, the same last days in which God spoke by Jesus. The only conclusion I, I mean, I, I was I had a I had an aha moment. I had to pick up my phone and call my dad. I'm like, have I been wrong? I've been wrong. I've been wrong with this. My, I, I mean, it was that kind of, it was in, in the middle of the day. It's just, I had stopped because it, it was one of those moments of clarity that went, wow, I've missed something so simple. It's right there in the text. Okay. The last days, not the Christian age. Last days, the last days of the age. Lo, I'll be with you always, even until the end of the age. That's what it is. Peter is writing not about the Christian age. He's writing about the last time, the last days of the age. That's what he's talking about. The age ending in and around AD 70. And it is in these last times that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in this time. He was seen. Read John chapter 1 right here. Read John 14, where Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says to him, have I not been so long with you, Philip? You should know who I am. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know who I am. He was manifest. The death, burial, and the resurrection of the Christ manifested his glory, showed the world who he was. It was then confirmed by the eyewitnesses. He was manifest in these last times. He's been put forth. That goes to Romans chapter 3. 
He's put them forth as the propitiation for our sins. And that goes to that but now construct in Romans. The one mediator between God and man who gave himself a ransom for all, ready to be testified in due time. Due time, the end of the last times. The end of the last days. He's manifested in this time that you're now in which you're now living. That's when he's been manifested. That's when he's been declared. And that's been done for the sake of you. Now, the sake of you, go back up earlier in the text. The prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. They searched and inquired diligently inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted of the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that you had, that, that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit since from heaven. He was manifested in the last times for the sake of you right? Who? Who through him are believers in God? Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God? Manifested in in these last times for the sake of you. Who through him, Jesus, are believers in God. Now, once again, um, I will admit that here would be another place that um, potentially you could have a, a reference to Gentiles. Um, you could. Because that construct there in verse 21 would suggest that um, it is because of the knowledge of Jesus that these individuals have now become believers in God, right? And a Jew prior to the coming of Jesus would obviously have had, a a faithful Jew at least, would have already had a, a, a belief in God. That is true. That is absolutely true. And here's another place where potentially I could be wrong here. Um, I could be wrong here. And let, let me hasten to add one more time. I think I said this yesterday. I may need. To, I may have to repeat this several times throughout this class just in case anybody watches one slice of it. It is not my position here that there were no Gentiles attached to the writing of 1 Peter. As I said, I believe it was yesterday. The, the letters written to the churches of Galatia, or to the, to the to saints in Galatia. Okay, who was there? Both Jews and Gentiles. It's written to the, the, the saints in Asia, who was there? Both Jews and Gentiles. And by the early to mid-60s, uh, AD, you know, 64, let's call it, there's probably more Gentiles in the church than there are Jews. So the people who read this letter in those provinces probably more Gentiles reading it than Jews, okay? So I'm not saying this book excludes the Gentiles in any way. I am saying this book is written from a Jewish perspective, 
and with a Jewish focus, that Peter's, the, Peter's target audience would be Jews. So appeals to the Gentiles, language that the, applies to the Gentiles is going to be found in the book. But I believe his target audience, the people that he is trying to move, are the Jews. So let me add that, all right? But that you could take that phrase there in verse 21 very easily to apply it over to, um, to uh, just, uh, just Gentile, Gentile individuals, okay? Um, that is entirely, entirely possible, all right? Um, however, I will say, I will say this. Um, what you have in, in the biblical writings about the Jewish faith is a misconstruction of their relationship to God. And one thing that the coming of the Christ did for those who were willing to receive him is that you have heard that it's been said, but I say unto you construct. Um, that, that clarification, that illumination of the law that came from the person of, of Jesus, okay? Um, and let me, let me go over to um, a verse that I think may help with what I'm trying to say here. Um, Fifteen. Um, no, no, fifteen four is not what I want. Um, where's the verse I want? I just made up a verse in my brain. No, I didn't. It's right there. Is it later in this chapter? Is it fifteen? Did I just make up a long, hold on. I'm gonna have to look this one up. Um, give me a second. Wow, I was way off. I had fifteen four in my brain, but that is Romans. That, that is I was way off on that. Romans ten. I had fifteen four on the brain, but that's a. Uh, you know, whatever things are written for time, and I couldn't couldn't get 15 out of my brain. Romans 10 is what I want. Okay. Here's what Paul says. He says about the Jews, and this is that goes back to this concept of ignorance that we were talking about yesterday. And I think that's this that's the connection I want to make with you. The 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 ignorance and the and the the of of um of of, of what's mentioned there in First Peter about their forefathers and so on. That ignorance, combine it here, all right? My desire, heart's prayer for, for, to God for them about Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness, they have a zeal to God, not according to knowledge. So they're ignorant of these things. And that's what he says in the next verse. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I think that's kind of the connection here, all right? Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. I don't think Peter is saying here 
that it is, let me get back here to First Peter, that it is by the Christ that you first developed a, a knowledge of Jehovah. I don't think that's the point. Admittedly, could be. Uh, you want to read that just as quickly, you know, straightforward as you can. That that would that boy that would fit Gentiles strongly, wouldn't it? Uh, and I, I can't argue with that. But I think he's still talking to the same audience that is up here. Okay. They he they he um um is is trying to get them to understand. Let me let me say it this way. I'm 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 struggling to get this in the in the phraseology of the want. This is what happens when you teach without notes in front of you, and you're trying to craft a craft the the language on the fly. It, it can happen to you sometimes. But the let me let me back up. Let me go first. First Peter. Here here's here's where my thinking comes from. That might be an easier way. Let me start at the beginning and, and walk you down where my where my thinking comes from. What is it that is in doubt here? What I believe is in doubt here is again that, as I say, when you when you find a purpose statement in the book, try to keep everything as best you can connected to that purpose statement. What is it that's in doubt? What is in doubt that what they have done is according to the true grace of God? And I keep coming back to this concept that you are elect, even though you're part of the dysphoria, part of the dispersion, you are elected the way that you have been. Nothing in Romans 8, nothing will separate you from that and so on. You have been elected to that according to the foreknowledge of God. That's the very thing that they're beginning to doubt. They are beginning to doubt that they have been elected according to his foreknowledge. I believe that is what he's talking about down here. Not that you have become a believer in God in the absolute sense. All right? But rather, this manifestation of the enduring, spotless, blemishless offering of the Christ, this enduring offering, was manifested in the last time for your sake. And not just for your benefit, not, not just so you could have salvation. But here is the, here is the proclamation of the hidden wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's been made clear to you, and it benefits you. The, the revelation of the, 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 the eternal, before the foundation of the world, foreknown plan of God has been manifested for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So you see the connection there? And this may be, this kind of brings home why I, what I'm thinking is going on here. He raised him from the dead. Okay. What's that? Well, obviously that, that's a great statement of salvation. That's a great statement of, 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 of the, the power of the, this precious blood and so on. But what is it in 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 just a in a in a real and personal experiential kind of thing? What is it? Well, that's a pretty strong testimony. That's a pretty strong endorsement of this man's person, of this man's being, of his identity, right? 
everybody now knows this is the cry. Everybody's again, who's honest. This is the one. This you know, when John asks, "Are you the one, or should we wait for another?" When Jesus rises out of that tomb, there, there's no there's there's no further question to be asked. There it is. It looked like the world had won. It looked like Jerusalem and the Jews and Rome. It looked like Satan had won. It looked like everything had fallen apart. No. He was known before the foundation of the world. The Holy Spirit predicted before it happened, it predicted the sufferings and the subsequent glory. That's exactly what he comes back to down here. He raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Sufferings, and then the answer to the sufferings, the glory that follows. Okay? Is that making more sense now? I think I finally got on my feet in terms of what I'm trying to say to you about it. The sufferings were first predicted. The glory to follow in line, predicted. You, for your sake, have seen this manifested in these last times. You've seen this process already. Chapter 4, he's left an example that we should follow. If Jesus had faith that he was a believer in God, you should too. Through him, and I take that to mean through the manifestation of him, through his sufferings and the subsequent glory, through him, you should have the same belief in God. You saw God stand by the one who was who was made to be sin and hung on the cross and cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, right? Not this one. This one hung on the tree and God raised him from the dead and then restored to him the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. Stick with God Stick with God's plan, and it all worked out. He suffered. God glorified him. The Holy Spirit predicted of the sufferings and the subsequent glories. What do you think the message here is? That your faith and your hope should be in God. Just as God ushered guided, directed, whatever you call it. God walked through, we walked with Jesus through the trials of the cross. And by the way, it is one of the most offensive doctrines to me that God actually forsook Jesus on the cross. I'd love, maybe ask me that question in the first hour one day and you'll hear me go off a little bit. That, 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 that's, that's one place I depart real strong from a lot of people. That's a complete misunderstanding of the cross. It's a complete misunderstanding of Psalm 22, and it bugs me to no end. Okay, God never forsakes a righteous person, never. And Jesus on that cross was not a sinner. He was a sin offering. Jesus on that cross was headed to paradise. Jesus was righteous, and God Never. It's a violation of his character. It's a violation of his essence to turn his back on a righteous person. He never does it. And he certainly didn't do it to his Christ. Didn't happen. All right. Ask me about it sometime in the first hour. 
and we'll talk all hour about it. It's one of my pet peeves. God walked with Jesus the entire time. And when he, when Jesus offered up his spirit, God was there to take it and bring it into paradise. And he raised him up and glorified him. That blood that was offered is enduring. It never fades. Saint of the exile in Asia and Galatia and Bithynia and suffering under the trials that come, have come upon you, God's walking with you. And if you stick with him, if you believe, if your faith and your hope are in him, he will guide you through this troubled time. So I don't think this phrase that you are now believers in God, I don't think it's talking about in the, in the absolute that now you have known God and have come to a knowledge of Jehovah because of Jesus. That's not what I think he's talking about. I think he's talking about that they are believers in God because their faith and hope are tied into him and their faith and hope is that after they have suffered for a little while, their faith will be tested and shown as genuine. And then look at look at the this is Peter's just so tight in this writing. Your faith, when it is tried and shown to be genuine, is going to be more precious than gold that perishes. So not only is his blood more precious and enduring than gold or silver. If you follow through, if you follow him in this path of, of going through the suffering and the glory that is to follow, predicted by the Holy Spirit, and you have the same faith and hope in God that Jesus had in God going to the cross, your end is the same as the Christ. You'll be glorified. And how are you going to be glorified? <laughs> Again, look at look how tight this is. He is manifested to show this to you. His path of suffering and glorification has been manifested. He was known before the foundation of the world. In other words, according to the foreknowledge of God, Jesus left heaven for his own, if you will, exile. And during that period of exile, he suffered. That suffering led him to the cross. He went to the cross stayed faithful, and, 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 and if you let your will be done in my life, God, stayed faithful. Completed the plan of God, John 17. I finished the work that you gave me to do. I endured to the end. He went to the cross. God stayed with him, raised him from the dead, and glorified him. The one who was known before the foundation of the world, the Holy Spirit predicted this was coming, that the Christ would leave heaven, he would suffer many things. He would be he would be uh, 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 taken and killed. He would rise again on the third day, and then he would return to the Father glorified. Mark chapter eight. The Holy Spirit predicted that the sufferings and the glories, according to the foreknowledge of God. You are now exiled, according to the foreknowledge of God. A little while, you're going to have to suffer during your exile. Getting down here to verse 10, this path of your suffering, oh, wait wait a minute, 
you're going to have to suffer a little while. But when you come through that suffering at the revelation of Jesus Christ, you're going to be glorified and praiseworthy and honored. And by the way, this is done according to the foreknowledge of God, and it is predicted by the Spirit of Christ that was in the prophets. This is so tight. I just, I just, the more I study First Peter, it's just, he is layering upon layer here, connecting everything that they've done to, to the plan of God, to the eternal purpose of God, and so, so skillfully weaving the story of Jesus into the story of these people's lives. It's amazing. It's an amazing writing. For the sake of you, through him, that you might become believers, raised him from the dead so that your faith and your hope are in God. I'm going to drive a peg there, and we'll come back tomorrow. Start in verse number uh, verse number 22. Let me see if there are any uh, comments or questions I need to look at here. Because um, i got about three or four minutes. I don't really want to start that next section. Um, uh, Mimi, back at 922, said, um, wasn't Peter the one who was sent to Cornelius, a Gentile? Uh, I would think he would be inclusive in his writings after that knowledge. And, and again, as, as I tried to say earlier, I don't think it excludes the Gentiles, no. But I do know that Peter is, is you know, Galatians chapter 2 was well after the days of Cornelius. And and it says very clearly there, when Peter when Peter and James met, met, meet with Paul, it's a very clear division. Paul says, to me, they committed the gospel to the uncircumcised, and to them was committed the gospel of the circumcised. Paul is the one who goes to the Gentiles. Peter very very clearly is sent to the Jews. And I, 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 so it's not exclusive of Gentiles. There's no way it can be. But I think it's largely Jewish, right? So again, it's not something I'm going to argue heavily about. But, you know, I'm the one with the microphone. So that, that that's where I'm going to go with it. But um, uh, that's what I would do. Uh, Gita, I'm going to skip that one where you say nice things about me and move on. Although I like it when you say nice things about me. I'm just not going to put it up on the screen today. <laughs> Um, always thought of Hebrews as a rebuke and exhortation to the Jews. Such a delight to find parallels with Peter. I love the discovery. I have to. Uh, it is uh, that that has developed with me over the last um, uh, last bit, a little bit, and and it is it is it's one of the exciting things about Bible study is you're always developing new thoughts. And then Gita also asked, would the Judaizers still be forced at the time of this writing? Absolutely. In fact, I think they would be at the peak of their power. Um, I believe the peak of the the power of the uh, of the Judaizers probably was in that when the period where the days were shortened, when Vespasian takes the army back to Rome, and there's a lull in the war between Rome and Jerusalem. I think that's when the Judaizers. If I had been if I'd been alive in that time and I was a Judaizer, what I would have been saying to people is, "See, we won. See, Jerusalem is going to stand. Jerusalem's always going to stand. Stand. The temple is always going to be there. You Gentiles really need to listen to us." We've been telling you all along we were right. So I don't know that I have any I don't know that I have any historical documentation about that, but it just makes perfect sense to me that that's when uh, they would have been at their most powerful. So yeah, absolutely. And there are some there's some writings of Paul that are I believe um, uh, con, you know contemporaneous with uh, with First Peter, and he's still very much dealing with the uh, the Judaizers in that time. So. Uh, you can find them in First Timothy, for example, and that they'd be pretty close together in time. Uh, Christine, give me a couple of uh, references that I was trying to find earlier. Um, Three twenty-one. That must be the. Uh, 
Um, that, that what was I? I was looking. I can't even remember what I was looking for. I wanted to make it lay out. I see it. Was it sit down in my throne? Anyway, that's my short attention span. I can't even remember why I wanted that passage. Uh, But she says, when the centurion which stood over against him saw that they cried out so, he gave up the ghost and said, truly, this is the son of man, which would be, I think, talking about um, the testimony about the Christ I was talking about earlier. Uh, Connie, I see your comment there, and I would agree with with your disagreement, if that makes sense. Um, I think that's, um, I think that's it. But uh, I appreciate all the kind comments. I got a lot of thank yous and stuff down there at the bottom of that. And I appreciate that. Uh, thank you, Connie and Christine and Gita and Vicki and, and all of those that have been here, Mimi, uh, that have been here for the second part of the study. I do appreciate your attention and uh, your participation in the study. And I haven't said this in a while, but let me say it here as I close. As always, when you study the Bible with me, um, obviously, I, obviously I'm teaching what I believe, so I think it to be right. And I'm, I, I'm never ashamed of what I teach because I, I want it. I believe it's the right position. But understand, it is never my goal, never my goal, to uh, change your mind. It's just not. Uh, I hope I do. If you disagree with me, I hope you would change your mind and agree with me. I do. But my goal is not to get you to change your mind. Um, whether it's about the Jesus being forsaken on the cross or this being a, a Jewish book as opposed to a more inclusive Gentile book. If you want to disagree with me, and like I said, there, there are a lot of things I will teach that I'm not going to argue strongly against you about because I don't think it does any damage to the text. Uh, there are some things that I will argue very strongly against you um, and without any hesitation at all. But um, uh, my goal is not to, to, to get people to agree with me. As I've said in the past, I don't want to say it here again. My goal is not your agreement. It is your understanding. I just want you to understand why I say the things I do. Um, understand the perspective I'm coming from. Analyze it. You are good Bible students. You're here all the time. You have thousands of thousands of hours of Bible study under your belt. You are fully capable of reading the Bible and understanding it. Okay. If you find yourself disagreeing with me, one, please don't get grumpy with me unless I'm just teaching something that's complete false doctrine. I mean, didn't get grumpy with me. But um, if it's uh, some of the things we've been talking about here, Jesus being forsaken on the cross or some of those other things, no reason to, well, of course I get grumpy about that. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not living by my own, by my own, uh, by my own advice, but uh, you know, anyway, uh, but uh, that that's all, that's all I'm saying is I, I'm not after changing your mind. I just want you to understand the perspective I'm coming from. And if you will consider it, even if you end up rejecting it, that's fine. Uh, just give it, give it consideration. And if you uh, at least appreciate the approach we take on this program, I would I would appreciate it if you keep coming back, and as you do, but you keep coming back and, and keep uh, considering things that, that are being said here. So that being said, um, I will sign off for today because we're already two minutes past the top of the hour, and it is time to wrap this thing up. The uh, Beth Brewer will be on here in about four hours, and we will uh, uh, sit tight until then and look forward to uh, seeing you later this afternoon. And if we don't, I guess I'll see you back here tomorrow morning um, for uh, another hour of uh, or two hours of From the Deep End on Thursday. And as far as I know, I believe my dad should be here tomorrow. I have not heard otherwise. So I'm anticipating him being on the program or his being on the program with me. And we will see you back here then. So until then, as always, it is my prayer. You will go out and make your day a great one for God.